Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of current and classic horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews and discussions may include spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. Protect us on two sides. I put up the fences to make it safe. And these fences go all the way across? Both ways. But if the living can adapt, things are changing. These guys are not just walking. So can the dead. It's like they're pretending to be alive. They're mindless walking corpses. They'll never get across the river. They're moving toward the city. There's nothing there, man. They're communicating. They're thinking. Ah! We're going back to see if we can help. Trouble. In a world where the dead are returning to life, the word trouble loses much of its meaning. Running out of time. Romero's Land of the Dead. Zombies, man. They creep me out. Welcome to another installment of my year-long Masters of Horror celebration, in which I'm joined by a guest every Friday to chat about one of their favorite films from our month's featured director. For the month of February, we're honoring none other than the late and great zombie godfather himself, George A. Romero. And today's episode highlights the fourth installment in Romero's zombie series, 2005's Land of the Dead. Revolving around the power-hungry dictator Paul Kaufman, played by Dennis Hopper, who perpetuates class divide between survivors by lording over the poor with Fiddler's Green, an immense high-rise for the wealthy. But when security officer Cholo Demore, played by John Leguizamo, stages a coup against Kaufman and steals the heavily armored vehicle Dead Reckoning, he threatens to destroy Fiddler's Green. Kaufman enlists the help of Dead Reckoning's creator, Riley Denbo, played by Simon Baker, and his friends Charlie and Slack to stop Cholo before he destroys Fiddler's Green. And to break down one of Romero's most evolutionary zombie films is returning friend of the show, Bernie. Welcome back, man. I appreciate you having me on. How are you doing? Not bad. I'm excited to talk about Land of the Dead because this is one of Romero's, one of the few Romero films that I've only seen once, I believe. And again, it's one of those movies that I probably haven't seen in like a decade. Mm-hmm. That's probably been how long it's been. So to revisit it and kind of not only in terms of just like looking at it in the context of Romero's filmography as a whole, but also just kind of, I mean, this is something that I've been harping on a lot lately. And the older I get, the more in revisiting films from like the early 2000s, which I maybe didn't remember as fondly, I kind of have a new appreciation for uh, all this time since. Mm -hmm. No, 100%. I mean, you know, when you think about George A. Romero's classics, uh, this typically isn't on that list, right? Um, but at least for me, when I was watching this, I was, again, to your point, I was really pleasantly surprised to how, you know, intriguing it actually ended up being. Yeah, and that's something that I really want to get into uh, a little bit more. But before we get into that, 
Uh, I'm curious, kind of, what is your George Romero origin story? Do you remember your first introduction to his work? Uh, it was probably like when I was super young, um, watching Night of the Living Dead, that original one um, that we talked about as well. Um, the you know he's coming to get you, Barbara. Like I remember right, right. very vividly. Um, I haven't. Uh, granted, I haven't seen all of Romero's uh, films, which is kind of a, a shame on me, but um, that was probably the first interaction that I had with a Romero film. Yeah, Night, you and I share a, an affinity for that because Night of the Living Dead was also my first exposure to his work. And it's one of those movies that I saw it at such a young age that it was almost like I had no frame of reference for what I was seeing, you know? I mean, when in exploring horror as a kid, you, it's very easy to understand like, oh, there's a, there's a monster Like clearly there's a monster if you're talking about something like the fly or the thing, or, oh, it's a crazy person with a knife, Psycho or Halloween. But with Night of the Living Dead, as I think I saw this probably when I was like seven or eight, not having context for like what a zombie really was at that point, obviously in the nineties, zombies were not as big as they were nowadays right they weren't kind of commercialized to the point where to the point of almost satire right where everybody's got zombie fever essentially and so i remember being very taken with night of the living dead in that a it was terrifying because there are these things that look like people mm -hmm. that are covered in blood and eating meat and just the way that romero is able to really capture a group of people that are kind of like turning on themselves right and that's something that as a kid not really understanding, obviously, a lot of the um, social commentary and racial commentary in Night of the Living Dead. I mean, just seeing people turning against one another in chaos or in an uh, apocalyptic scenario like that, mm -hmm. I just remember being profoundly disturbing in a way that as a kid I couldn't explain, but now it's much more clear to me why I felt that way. Right, no, 100%. I mean, um, I think we all had those fears when we were younger of like, what if something happened and like how we would handle it, whether it's, you know, going camping and a bear attacks you or, you know, you're in the middle of a <laughs> yeah. city and, and a zombie apocalypse happens. So again, I think the simplicity of Night of the Living Dead hit home, because again, to your point, it's it's just about dead people coming back to, you know, eat a living people, right? Um, so the way that, you know, it kind of transitioned to this, it, it seems like for the most part, I haven't seen Day of the Dead. Um, but it seems like there's some sort of an arc in each one of these movies that Romero hits on, um, whether subtle or not. Um, again, that I think just, you know, it goes to show what kind of a, a legendary director that guy really is. Yeah, I'll say this in regards to Land of the Dead in that when I originally saw it back in the day, I think we were talking uh, just briefly, like I hadn't seen this in probably 10 years. Mm -hmm. And my memory of it was a lot less positive than my impression of it now is on a rewatch. I remember this being, or I remember kind of like the rudimentary frame uh, way I would phrase it, my experience with the film prior to now is that it was kind of like the beginning of his films taking a turn from being these kind of landmark horror films that had fantastic zombie effects and kills and social commentary to, certain, to uh, a certain extent. Mm -hmm. And yet after this film, I feel like the quality definitely takes a dip in terms of his zombie films. But in revisiting it, this movie is actually feels very indicative of the trajectory of the previous three films in the series, Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, and Day of the Dead. And it that sentiment is a lot stronger in the film than I remember. Granted, it's probably my, my piss poor memory, but I think that this movie 
I didn't was not giving enough credit for how much fun it is, but at the same time, it still rings very true to kind of like the ethos of that zombie trilogy, the original zombie trilogy of his movies. Mm-hmm. Well, again, to, I mean, to that effect, right? The first movie, Night of the Living Dead, th- I don't recall there being any moments of like real laughter, right? Or something that, I mean, not necessarily even laughter, but just humorous moments. They were all pretty horrifying, right? To one extent or another. Um, There's or- not a lot of levity. Right. In this one, I mean, again, the concept of zombies having any kind of thinking process um, is is creepy. But then when you see there's a scene where um, the the main kind of zombie is looking in um, at the city um, and he sees like a bunch of zombies basically being used as tar- target practice and they're just kind of swinging around. And again, it's horrible. It, to the extent that we're understanding it from their perspective, as silly as that is, that's kind of horrifying, right? But um, to just a, a normal person kind of looking onto it without any other kind of thought behind it, I think it's just kind of funny seeing those guys dangling around and then him screaming, and then it's the next step, uh, the next scene, right? Um, so there was there were definitely more moments of levity in this movie that I think if they weren't there, it wouldn't have come off as as good as it as it did. Yeah, that's a great way to kind of segue into one of my main where I think our conversation needs to begin in that I describe this as being a much more evolutionary zombie film in Romero's filmography in the sense that obviously there's a certain amount of progression between the portrayal of the zombies from Night of the Living Dead through Day of the Dead. And in Land of the Dead, it really does come to a head to a certain point where we start to see zombies evolving, right? This idea that the zombie apocalypse has been around long enough that the, and the certain zombies have survived the apocalypse long enough that they begin to retain parts or behaviors and um, deme- not demeanors, but kind of just the activities that they did themselves in, when they were alive. Right. And it sort of is this evolution of where the zombies' uh, capabilities are headed in that they're able to communicate. And the representation of that would be in the uh, IMDb page, he's billed as Big Daddy, which is like the lead zombie that was a mechanic or a... Uh, he worked at a gas station and he is the one that becomes the most cognizant of his new capabilities in the evolution of zombies, right? He's able to, I think the first example is, is that he realizes that the humans shoot fireworks into the sky, which they call like sky flowers to distract the zombies when they want to go through town. And big daddy is the one that goes over to different zombies and he like grabs them and shakes them, which knocks them out of their trance. And then they begin to adapt, right? It's all about adapting to the ways that the humans are surviving. And so I think you're right in that the levity in the movie is so important to not allowing this to become, I don't know how to phrase this, but like not to let this become super dramatic or super serious, right? I think in the original film, the lack of levity really didn't allow for the commentary that was in the movie to be to be distracted from it, right? Whereas in this one, it's like, okay, now you have zombies that are going to be able to use guns. They're going to be able to use hatchets and machetes and drills and all these things. And it's like, okay, we're getting to a point where we're treating zombies as not mindless, but they actually can retain some semblance of a being or a person or a thing. And I think you have to have levity there. So that way this side of the film doesn't begin to take itself too seriously. Mm -hmm. No, hundred percent. I mean, 
you know, again, when you see the the beginning, right, where um, he's, uh, I think he was trying to like pump gas, but there wasn't a car, right? And then you see like a zombie couple essentially walking, right? Like there are zombie movies that are strictly really funny, um, but they have like gory moments in them. I, I forget there was a, some movie that came out in the mid 2010s where it was like a, a girl was a zombie and she was trying to find her lover, was it, or something like that? Uh, called like Warm Heart or Cold Heart or something, something like that. Something, yeah, that's not my kind of cup of tea, so to speak. Um, but again, in, in this way that, that Romero filmed this, there was just enough of, again, not heartwarming moments, but those moments where you're understanding that like there is that evolution slowly taking place and there's gonna be goofy situations that happen. Um, but this is at, at the heart of it, it is still uh, a zombie movie to its core and you're gonna see the blood and guts and gore and you know, kind of crazy shit going down. Um, what was your thought on that original like first scene basically where we're introduced to John Leguizamo's character Cholo and um, kind of how they're raiding, you know, I think the concept was big cities are raiding small towns. That's what was going over like the radio ways in the beginning. Um, what was your kind of thought on, on kind of how that played out? Yeah. So I think that it's a great introduction to our core cast of characters because it shows how I mean, the contrast between how the humans and how the zombies are adapting, right? To this idea that there is no going back to a certain extent. There's only adapting. There's, you can't, you're not going to eradicate the zombie plague at this point, or at least that's the portrayal of the world that the film shows. And it's very much about adapting and kind of realizing, like, these are the new norms. And so we see, like, how, yeah, the reality is, is that the zombie apocalypse is not going to kill everybody. There's always going to be groups of survivors. There's always going to be groups of people that are hoarding uh, weapons and medication and all these different things. And so it's interesting just to see how like people at their core don't actually change that much, right? Because we get that whole instance where uh, John Linguizamo's character, it, they're raiding like a liquor store and it's, they, it's, they're very clear in stating like that's not what they're supposed to be there doing. Right. That, that character is getting things for his boss, who's Dennis Hopper, basically, because he wants to uh, impress him. So He'll invite him to live in Fiddler's Green. Mm -hmm. And yet it shows that like people are very opportunistic. Right. And then at the same time, contrasted against the zombies, and you already mentioned there's a scene where Big Daddy essentially leads a horde of zombies towards Fiddler's Green, right? They're becoming more cognizant. They have a goal, a mission. And that scene you mentioned where the zombies are hanging upside down as target practice. Mm -hmm. Like Big Daddy's reaction to that is that he starts screaming in anger. And it's an interesting portrayal because they show the zombies as being able to retain human elements. Mm -hmm. And then they show there are several instances where especially Big Daddy like reacts to the way that people are gunning down the zombies or how they treat zombies. And there's a humanizing quality in that that I think I have more of an appreciation for thinking about the film as a whole and what the film's setting out to do. Mm -hmm. Granted, you need those moments of levity in there so that way you don't kind of just roll your eyes at everything that's happening. But I think that it's a really strong part of this film that maybe doesn't get enough credit or perhaps people like me were overlooking it uh, early on. But I think if we're going to talk about like the zombies and you mentioned some of the fantastic uh, gore and just makeups effect, mm -hmm. uh, Greg Nicotero mm -hmm. is the makeup supervisor for the film. And for people that don't know, uh, 
more recently, he d he's done things like The Walking Dead, Fear the Walking Dead, The Watchmen miniseries. Mm -hmm. But in terms of like his collaborations with Romero, he worked on Day of the Dead with him. He did Survival of the Dead, which was a later uh, Romero movie. He was a consultant. And then he was like a makeup producer on Diary of the Dead. So he has this relationship, not only to horror films and horror series, but with Romero himself. And granted, this is the first of the Romero zombie movies that have special effects in them in terms of like digital VFX. Mm -hmm. And yet I feel that Nicotero is so key in, allow in not allowing the VFX to ever overshadow the film. There's a couple of instances where the VFX are very apparent and to a detriment almost. And yet a majority of the movie I don't feel actually over relies on that. A lot of it is just traditional zombie makeup and practical effects with them that it makes this film not feel as early 2000s as it is, right? It kind of, it never really becomes an eyesore for me. What do you think? No, absolutely. And I mean, you know, thinking about Again, some of the most classical zombie moments that that have happened throughout Romero's films. Um, you got to take your hat off to Greg Nicotero for uh, the scene where they're coming through that, whatever that waterway or river that right in there. The zombies are slowly kind of coming out of the water, and I mean, the just the makeup effects on that look so darn realistic, even for that time. Um, so yeah, again, to your credit, he does a fantastic job on it. That's a, I'm glad you brought that up because that scene is a homage to a 1962 film called Carnival of Souls by uh, Herc Harvey, mm -hmm. which is one of those classic horror films that I remember seeing at way too young an age that kind of like scared the shit out of me just because there's so little dialogue in it. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's one of those scenes where I think, again, it kind of just shows that Romero is constantly evolving the way that he thinks about zombies because I mean, granted, again, this is the biggest budget, too, I believe, for one of his films up until this certain point in his career. And it really shows him what he's able to do. And he's still able to take zombies and portray them in a unique way, but also just very horror-centric shots. Mm -hmm. Again, there's only a few instances where there are really, like, VFX-heavy mo zombie moments. Mm -hmm. And yet, this is one of those practical moments that still stands out. And it's probably the only scene from the movie that I really remembered in the 10 years since I saw it. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, overall, the zombie makeup is fantastic in this. And um, while we're talking about kind of like effects and makeup and things, uh, moving into like Dead Reckoning, mm -hmm. which is basically like an, a repurposed 18-wheeler mm -hmm. truck that's got metal plating on it. And it's got missile launchers and machine guns. Like, that's such an awesome prop. And I wish that there had been more of a making, like I watched a making of of this and there wasn't, nearly as much info about it. I was kind of surprised by that, but I thought that that was, again, kind of just this cool idea of showing how humans are adapting mm -hmm. to the situation. They're not, they've moved on from like, oh, we have like a truck that we're all trying to pile into or something like that. It just kind of shows that even though humans, are, humans will always survive because they're always going to be kind of like pushing their weapons, technology and things in a certain direction. Well, I mean, think about it, right? In Dawn of the Dead, which was... This is a 20, 2005 movie. So Dawn of the Dead was a year or two uh, released before, if I'm not mistaken. And they- The Zack Snyder remake. Oh, that was, well, fair enough, fair enough. But in that movie, they, you know, create those crazy kind of vans uh, out of those school buses, right? Um, yeah. So I think this is just kind of that next level up from that. Um, but it's, 
again, it's it's very unique how humans to this point have been able to combat uh, the zombies in, in his world, right? They're shooting off those sky flowers. Um, somehow, you know, for there aren't too many alcoholics, I guess, in that area because that liquor store looked pretty darn pristine. Um, <laughs> right, right. But it's such, you know, again, to to hats off to uh, Romero for always having this undercurrent in his movie, at least in his zombie movies of societal issues or um, societal woes. Um, there's even in this type of this environment, there's a massive class divide, right? You have the super wealthy living in this, you know, giant high tower building. And then you have like the peasants, so to speak, um, they're taking photos, you know, like with live zombies and, you know, betting on like if uh, Ozzy Argento's character can survive a, a zombie battle or for how long. Right. So it's just it's very unique that the way that he was able to kind of add that in and make it fit in, into that whole kind of a movie. And that was definitely something that I did not appreciate on a first watch. I think that I overlooked a lot of those things and. It's a testament to Romero again that he's able to really stay true to his portrayal of zombie, uh, of how the world adapts to zombies, a zombie apocalypse and whatnot. Like, right? I mean, yeah, it's very zombie focused. You get tons of great gore and makeup effects, but again, the focus never completely leaves people. And while I don't know that this film has my favorite cast of characters from a Romero movie, at the same time, though, the attention to the world building I think is much stronger in showing that, yeah people don't really change all that much. You're still gonna have people that have all the supplies and have all the wealth and they're lording above people that don't. And then people that don't have any of the wealth, instead of kind of essentially like unionizing and coming together and being like, hey, we need an equal distribution of wealth. They're distracted with a lot of the things that you might assume they would be because they don't have anything. So it's like, well, I don't have enough money to get a spot in Fiddler's Green, the high rise. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to go to this like carnival and just drink my sorrows away and bet on how long it's going to take for this girl to get eaten by two zombies. Right. And I think that that portrayal is really important again, because his portrayal of the class divide really does fuel the narrative um, in a way that is a little over the top at times. We'll get more into the characters and whatnot, but I think this film has a lot stronger world building than I gave it credit for originally. Well, and again, you know, looking at that movie um, from a, a third view, right? Where would you think you would land? Are you going to be in the military? Are you going to be in Fiddler's Green smoking cigars with uh, Kaufman? Or are you, you know, down below with that like Marxist fella who is saying a speech uh, during one of those scenes? I mean, there's a quite a, uh, an array of different positions you can be taking in there. Yeah, I think it's interesting too because Romero is very cognizant of the fact that he includes Cholo's character primarily because that character is somebody that is in like the middle class, right? So the lower class is people that are like street people. Middle class are people that work for the military or I think like scavengers class. Mm -hmm. They at least get to go out into the world and they have access to certain resources. At the same time though, nobody in the middle or the lower class are getting into Fiddler's Green. Mm -hmm. And that is the big spark that kind of causes Cholo to have that uh, coup where he's just like, fuck it, man, I've been doing everything I'm supposed to be doing and they still don't want me. It, mm -hmm. you know, not to ever try to compare this movie to Parasite, but I rewatched Parasite recently, um, which everybody should do. And Parasite, there's that scene where the family, 
basically puts themselves into the role of another of a wealthy family and they get closer to the riches and everything than they ever have before mm -hmm. and the man of the house or whatever who's at the top he still says like oh i can smell them these people have a certain smell mm -hmm. to them or a scent that they can't wash off and that is so important because it shows that no matter if you look the part if you act the part mm -hmm. you never will be the part to the people at the top the people at the top will always look down on you and I mean, that is true in Land of the Dead as well, right? You have people that they probably joined the scavenger class because mm -hmm. they're willing to take that risk because they think at the end of the day, they're going to become an upper class person. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, is that there's no upward mobility, right? There's only downward mobility. And so they're stuck in the middle class and there's nothing they can do because even though Cholo has seemingly done everything Kaufman wants, he's to a certain extent, he's good at his job. He's able to get him all this rare booze and whatever. In the, in Kaufman's eyes, Cholo is still like scum, basically. He's never going to uh, rise to Kaufman's level, no matter what he does. There's nothing he can do. And Kaufman says as much when he's like, yeah, there's a long waiting list to live in Fiddler's Green. And now for a brief intermission. If you've been enjoying this episode of Daily Horror Habit, please take a moment to subscribe to the show on your preferred streaming platform or leave us a review on iTunes. And thank you for your continued support. And I hope you enjoy the remainder of today's horrifying episode. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, to your point too, right? The, I guess the scavengers and the army are one and the same to, to an extent, right? Um, it's interesting in the first movie, the there is some sort of competency, it seemed like from people with guns in that sense, right? Like um, there's flashbacks in Night of the Living Dead, or not flashbacks, they're talking on TV about, you know, sheriffs gunning them down, saying aim for the head, right? And seeing, you know- The redneck militia. Exactly, right? Um, whereas it seems like, I don't know when this started happening, but this movie was a really good example of like, for whatever reason, the army was, ill-equipped or um they were kind of run by uh you know dipshits for lack of a better word i guess <laughs> yeah um because it you know it seems like in this 28 days or i'm sorry 28 weeks later um dawn of the dead to a certain extent right i mean when do you think that started happening because it, it seemed like there was a certain amount of time where in these romero movies or in zombie movies as a whole there was like some sort of competent military and seems like it's been lost now. I mean, that's a big part. And I think that it's very apparent in Land of the Dead too, is that people get too comfortable. And especially when you have everything, you become way too comfortable. And I think that that's very true in that Kaufman sees Fiddler's Green as a building on, on the hilltop, which it literally is. But at the same time, treating that as if it's an impregnable fortress is not true, obviously. And in their carelessness and becoming too comfortable with their riches, they overestimate the threat of the zombies to a certain point, right? I mean, there's nothing about the zombies that shouldn't be manageable. Even if they're using guns, even if they're using tools, a bullet to the head is still a bullet to the head. And they have more bullets than the zombies do and more accuracy or whatever. But I mean, in terms of not to kind of like try to nitpick and be like, this would never happen, but it's a, the sake of the events that happen and the deterioration of the society is that yeah, at the end of the day, people's greed will be their undoing. And if you're at the top and you're being undone, that trickles down. It's one of those things. There's no upward mobility, but there's lots of downward mobility when things go to hell. And we see that as soon as Fiddler's Green gets um, uh, invaded by the zombies, right? 
what does Kaufman do? He's supposed to be the guy in charge. He starts killing off the board members and he runs away, basically. Um, but in terms of like the characters, I'm curious, what did you think of this cast? Because this is definitely a more varied cast. It's a larger core cast than a lot of uh, Romero's other films, generally speaking. Um, so I'm curious, like, what did you think of some of these characters and the uh, performances? I mean, I like them. Again, I, I think you mentioned earlier um, it, it's a unique cast, but I like the fact that Yes, there are some names like Dennis Hopper and Simon Baker. Um, I don't know if Simon was as as relatively known then as he is now, but Dennis Hopper, for sure, everyone knew knew him to one extent or another. I I do like it that no one is no one kind of commands the screen too much, whether it's John Linguizamo or someone else, right? Um, I I think they each played their part really well. I mean, I, I think the casting director did a really good job. Yeah, um, I, I would definitely agree with that. It seems that even though Dennis Hopper is the biggest name in this movie, mm -hmm. he never becomes overly maniacal, which I think it really does stop the movie from being, like I described it as being more fun. Like there's a lot more humor in certain bits mm -hmm. and it's a lot looser in terms of just characters and the portrayal of a realistic world, I think in certain regards. Right. But Dennis Hopper playing it, I mean, he said his inspiration was to play the character like Donald Rumsfeld. Mm -hmm. And I think that he captures that really well, this kind of like greedy cocksucker businessman that is hoarding all the wealth and all the power. And I think that it's important that his character is played that way because he never becomes like a supervillain mm -hmm. to a certain extent, which then would make the whole thing feel like a fucking cartoon or something. Right. Um, and I do think that while like John Leguizamo's character, I think is a little too over the top. Um, I think that it's a good balance of characters because while I'm not terribly taken with Simon Baker in this, mm -hmm. I think that when he's played against John Leguizamo, who plays kind of like an over over the top bad guy, yeah. it brings Leguizamo down a little bit, like a little bit down to earth that Baker is like the good moral authority or whatever. Um, I think for me though, like none of the characters necessarily stand out that much, but I do like uh, Riley and uh, Charlie's kind of like bromance mm -hmm. who's uh, Simon Baker plays Riley and then Robert Joy plays Charlie and Charlie is I think he's it's basically summed up as he was like a street kid or something that Riley pulled out of a fire and so like half of his face is burned but he's also like an expert marksman who is basically Riley's kind of like combat partner they travel everywhere and Charlie has this kind of like debt that he's constantly trying to pay back Riley. And he does that by protecting him and stuff like that. Um, and I kind of just, I like the, their bromance. It plays out in a lot of humor and it never treats Charlie like he's a victim, right? Clearly he's got a disability to a certain extent. Like he can't use half of his uh, face, but at the same time, he's the one that's headshotting all these zombies. And he's the one that, even though he doesn't stand up to like bullies in the world of Land of the Dead, at the same time, we know that he's more than capable of fucking anybody up. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I there was one line um, when Charlie and Slack were um, there was like this big Samoan dude that they were um, kind of hanging out or not hanging out with, but they were uh, defending with. And Charlie says to Slack, um, the reason Riley likes me is because he likes being alone. And when I'm with him, I'm not really there anyways. Like, not verbatim, but again, your point about the, the bromance, they definitely have a good one. But um, I will say to, to your point about John Linguizamo's character, I think the arc for his character, like, he is definitely a little bit over over the top. 
but at the end how how his character's kind of arc comes to a full head again to to john uh, george romero's credit um i think he did that for a reason i don't think he chose the name and that kind of actor in the way that he was portraying it um to to mean anything else in that sense no, that's definitely true. Liguizamo's character, I think, has the only memorable arc, right? Mm. I mean, a majority of the characters in this, they're just trying to survive. Whereas Liguizamo goes from essentially like being the bad guy for a majority of the film. And then he has that redemption arc where he ends up getting bit. And instead of killing himself, he turns and he goes to enact revenge against Kaufman. Mm-hmm. And then you get that fantastic scene where like the callback, that big daddy zombie after all the zombies storm Fiddler's Green and they take over the facility. Mm-hmm. Big Daddy finds Kaufman in the car because he's trying to flee with all of his money. Mm-hmm. And he finally, he picks up the gas pump and he shoves it through the windshield and fills the car with gas. Right. And then Liguizamo shows up zombified mm-hmm. and basically tries to take him out. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a great kind of just like redemption arc for his character. Mm-hmm. And it's part of it is like, you feel a sense of justification in his actions. Finally, he gets to pull one over on the guy that fucked him out of what he was supposedly owed. Mm -hmm. But then you also get a little moment of levity where the two of them are struggling and the big daddy zombie basically throws a Molotov at the car Mm -hmm. and that kills them both. I mean, it's a great combination of a character kind of serving a greater purpose, but also having a brief moment of uh, levity there. Absolutely. And, and real quick, you mentioned earlier, um, I, I forget exactly what you said, but you said something along the lines of, um, if, you know the way that um the the zombies have like human senses or you know humanistic qualities to them at the very end i'm not going to spoil it quite yet but um one of the characters sees um the big daddy zombie and he says uh don't shoot at them they're just trying to find a home too um so again you know the cognizance of some of some of these survivors to the fact that these aren't just normal zombies they are they do have some sort of humanistic quality. Again, it just, it feels like it echoes throughout the movie. Um, And that's just another example of what you just said of, you know, the big daddy character throwing a Molotov while John Linguizamo's zombified character is trying to kill um, Kaufman. I mean, it it doesn't get better than that in that kind of a scene. Yeah, and I'm I'm really, it's a great point that you make about bringing up um, the scene where Riley's like, no, they're just trying to find a home to a certain extent. That's what he's saying. But I like that that is the extent to which some sort of sympathy is given to the zombies. And I like that it the evolution of the zombies, at least in this, because I haven't seen the other two uh, Romero zombie movies that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that like they never try to have the zombies talk. Yeah. Like they, the zombies communicate amongst one another by like growling and roaring, which is very primal. But they never try to have them like actually communicate with other people or speak language or English or anything like that, which I like because that would take this to a level of absurdity that I don't know if I'd be able to look past. Mm -hmm. But I do like that it shows that the human characters are cognizant of the fact that, and it, I mean, to a certain extent, it might beat us over the head with it, but the point Romero's making is, is that we're not that different from them. Right. Everybody's trying to survive. Everybody's doing the things they have to do to survive. Mm -hmm. And part of that survival might be revenge. I mean, we see that contrast, like, Big Daddy wants revenge for the way that the humans are eviscerating his zombie brethren. Liguizamo wants revenge on the way that Kaufman is treating him. And Riley and his friends, essentially, they want revenge against Kaufman for hoarding all the supplies and the wealth above everybody else. Um, So 
Romero's ability really to kind of drive that home, I think, is, again, on a rewatch, it's a lot more telling in a way that I didn't give it credit for originally. Mm-hmm. Well, so now that you've seen this again, um, and there's a couple of kills that stood out, at least to me, but what was your kind of most memorable kill from this, your most enjoyable one to watch? Um, it's a good question. One of the, one of the kind of like funny kills that I like, that's a... Uh, that's probably the most VFX heavy moment, but it's still, it's a good combination of gore and the levity that we've been talking about Mm -hmm. Um, is the one when the the decapitated zombie priest Mm -hmm. shows up and like grabs a guy and the guy, I think it's, the guy has some kind of stereotype attached to his character where he's like a a luchador or something like that or a bull rider (laughs) or uh, something like that. Or he's a wrestler. I don't even know. It's some kind of stereotype. It's a matador or something. Yes, a matador. It's very questionable, but uh like a zombie, a priest zombie that looks like it doesn't have a head grabs his arm and he goes, Oh, thank God. Cause he thinks it's just dead. And then it's head is hanging on by his thread and it basically like swings its head behind its back <laughs> onto him and takes a chunk out of his arm. And like, I love that moment. Cause again, it's a funny moment, but it's also kind of brutal mm-hmm. in that he's getting bit. Um, and then of course you have uh, Charlie who's able to shoot the zombie through the chest and pierce its head, mm-hmm. which is an awesome moment. Um, but yeah, there's, I like, I guess, just the overall approach to violence. Everything is kind of ramped up to 11 Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of like you have Dead Reckoning, which has just got machine guns that are tearing through waves of zombies and then blowing them up. And then you have the guards that have unlimited ammunition seemingly. And yet there's so many zombies that they're still getting killed. Mm -hmm. Um, Another one I probably like is one of Liguizamo's crew who rides a skateboard around. That's like his defining character trait. He gets jumped at the docks basically by zombies and one of them is like a clown zombie that starts taking chunks out of his shoulder or his arm or something like lots of little moments like that i think have a payoff that i wouldn't normally give them if it had been somebody else handling them because romero again he's just so seamless at blending that humor with pretty fantastic uh makeup and practical effects how about you what are some of your favorite kills i mean yeah one of them uh, we both agree we have uh, smart minds think alike i was going to mention the, the clown <laughs> one um yep. i that was also probably the scariest outside of when the zombies come out of the water to me at least that was probably the scariest moment because you know that they're gonna hit them right but like at first i think it was a rat or a I forget what it was some sort of a rodent basically came in there and scared him at first and then he's petting it and then he like hears a noise outside and he rolls his skateboard over there and like in our heads you know he's about to die it's just a matter of how right um so that's definitely up there the other one for me and um again we've had this conversation before about um enjoying movies where it's not always like the happiest of endings um there was that scene where they're trying to cross the bridge and save you know whatever thousand people that were there and then they get there and it's just a complete total massacre um you start shooting off the rockets even though there's in in some kind of a way there's people that are alive there um that to me was just a badass moment because again you had the thought of like they're definitely going to come in dead reckoning is going to absolutely obliterate all those zombies and save the day and then you know it shit happens they just didn't make it in time and they had to like you know annihilate everything over there um so i think that was just a a, probably the most memorable one for me well that scene's awesome too because you have all these different moments where like zombies are grabbing people or using weapons to kill them i mean there's one scene where 
an army guy takes out a grenade and then the butcher zombie basically <laughs> hacks off his arm with a machete and the guy falls on it and then he gets blown in half, which is hilarious again. Uh, or when the big daddy teaches one of the other zombies how to use the gun that he has. Mm -hmm. And so the starts firing the gun and then big daddy leads the gun towards a Marine that's on the ground. Like that's a hilarious moment too. But um, also there's a uh, Tom Savini cameo who is the guy that did the special effects for Dawn of the Dead. Mm -hmm. uh, he's in it and he like wears the same costume that he wore in Dawn of the Dead with for his cameo in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then it's just like him in the same cameo, uh, same costume, except he's zombified now. Like I love that moment. That was another one that's a, a favorite of mine. Mm -hmm. So, you know, are you upset looking back now that there isn't a necessary sequel to this or did you like the way that it ended up wrapping up? You know, I like the way that none of the movies are connected to one another. I like that we're getting different stages of the zombie apocalypse through different lenses. Mm -hmm. I don't like back in the day when I would watch these movies, I would kind of want them to follow up with the characters. Obviously, that was not a choice in uh, Night of the Living Dead. Right. But like in Dawn of the Dead, I was very surprised the first time I watched Day of the Dead that it wasn't picking up where it left off with the same characters from that. And I was like, oh, that kind of sucks. I like those characters. And yet... I do like now that I'm much older and I've kind of revisited these movies. I like that we're getting, again, different lenses with which to view the same apocalypse. And it's at different stages in the apocalypse. Even if it's only a couple of hours or something or a couple of days or weeks or months, it's still different stages of the apocalypse. And as we see that that portrayal ultimately leads to why in Land of the Dead, mm -hmm. it makes sense that the zombies are starting to change, why they're evolving, why they are adapting just as we are mm -hmm. um, in a way that, I mean, luckily Romero had a ton of creativity that he was able to make that entertaining more or less and blend it with an ethos that's been true of all of those uh, core trio of zombie movies that he did. Mm -hmm. no, Do you I think we needed a sequel to this? Um, I think you hit it on the nail. When I was younger, I would have liked to see it. Um, mm -hmm. To be fair, I would like to have some sort of a zombie movie where you do go out into the wilderness of like Canada or something where you're in a mountainous area. I might be, mm -hmm. you know, kind of sounding silly if there is already one like this, but um, that I mean, it, within the context of Romero's world, I don't mm -hmm. believe we have seen uh, granted. I haven't seen survival or diary of the dead, but I don't believe that he did a zombie film that was true to his ethos mm. that was set in the wilderness. Maybe survival, but I'm not sure. It's Di Diary of the Dead, definitely not, because I've seen that one. But um, again, I mean, just thinking about, you know, like, you know, you're up in a ski resort or something like that, mm -hmm. and you have some sort of food, you have the chairlifts and stuff like that that you can use as a getaway just in case. But um, maybe I'm thinking way too ahead on this. Um, but yeah. No, uh, I mean, Sorry, I, that's the thing, though, is that I think it's very telling that each of his the first four zombie movies that he did, they were true to his style of filmmaking and the way of type and the types of stories he likes to tell. And each one of them is different, mm -hmm. even if it's I mean, it, it would be reductive to say, well, the setting just changed. Well, it's like, no, the setting did change. And yet the portrayal of people is similar, but it's still slightly different. It kind of just shows with each of those movies like. The settings got bigger. People had more access to more resources and different positions of power mm -hmm. in terms of like the apocalypse power structure that mm -hmm. people would indefinitely cause uh, or create with one another. But it's taking these ideas and it's blowing them up or it's approaching them in a different direction that 
yeah, I mean, it's even, I haven't seen the, again, I haven't seen Survival of Diary, but from my understanding, those movies are very different than what he had done previously mm-hmm. in, in one regard or another. And I can't speak to their quality. And yet he's still cognizant of the fact that, hey, if I can't just tell another zombie movie. And that was something that a couple of people in the director, uh, the making of that I watched for this said, they were like, well, he's not just going to make another zombie movie for the sake of making it. It has to be something that he believes in, whether it's true to his ethos or it's evolving on the methodology of storytelling or the presentation of that storytelling. Um, I think that that's very, that's very telling from going from each of those zombie films he did to the next and the significant amount of time in between each of their releases. Mm -hmm. If Romero just wanted to make another zombie movie, he could make another fucking zombie movie and it would not be hard for him to get that made. And yet... He took a significant amount of time because he was ensuring that that quality was there. Mm-hmm. And while quality is rather uh, subjective for a lot of people, mm-hmm. I think I don't think it's a stretch to say that within the context of the first four films, they're all very different, but they also are successful in what they set out to do in a way that's entertaining, thought-provoking, and also a gory fun time. Mm-hmm. Well, to kind of wrap this up on on what we were talking about at the beginning where we were saying that there are overtones of um societal woes or societal issues right he's not to say he's forward too forward thinking because i think there was a lot of people that in the 2000s saw the issue of societal inequalities coming up um or at least monetarily speaking but it's very interesting how the first movie was more at least in my opinion about like racial overtones right whereas this one is economic overtones and he hit this i mean if this movie this movie was made in 2005 i mean occupy wall street was just six years later right like the financial crash and all the stuff that led off to that were two three years after that so it's just very interesting how he saw those issues starting to manifest was able to put this into a movie again in a a very smart and intricate way um and, and again, it has a, a message that's a lot more than just these zombies have thoughts and feelings, potentially. It's it's very unique. Yeah. And I think that, again, it's such a shame, obviously, that he passed away because there aren't... A t- obviously, there have been plenty of zombie movies since that have been fantastic, but I don't know how many are able to... Like, they either pick one, cat, one checkbox or another to really excel at, right? Either it's, oh, it's got really great graphics, it's got really great characters and these types of things and yet Romero was really able to check multiple boxes in a way that was satisfying whether you want to talk about Land, Dawn, Day or Night of the Living Dead I mean he really was able to do that in a way that uh, I don't know many can and many will in the future but I mean yeah this is definitely a film that I was happy to revisit just because I had such a negative memory of it for whatever reason like thinking that it was stupid or silly or whatever but in revisiting it for this conversation, I had a blast getting to uh, kind of t- dig at the methodology of the movie and how it is actually so in line with his stylistic uh, tendencies with zombie movies, especially. No, 100%. I mean, um, you know, in the whole grand scheme of like zombie movies, do you think this cracks your top five or is this more in like the seven through 10 region? Um, I. Yeah, you know, I I enjoy it a lot more than I initially did. I definitely don't think it's going to crack my top five. Mm-hmm. I think, I don't even know, 10 might even be a stretch for me. Like, I still enjoy it a lot, but I don't think that it's one of, his, even one of his best films mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the zombie trilogy. But 
I do think it is much stronger and I would I would almost say it's might be well, I don't want to say more rewatchable. I think that this is one that is much more action focused and action heavy and humor focused. So this might be a little more accessible to certain people that don't necessarily want to watch a 60s movie or uh, 70s or 80s or, or whatever for uh, they like somebody that maybe was their first introduction to zombies was Snyder's Dawn of the Dead. This might be something that they would jump to from that just because it's more recent in terms of when that was released. And also it's a little closer to the expectations that you might have, because both of those are much more action heavy focused than any of the three films that he released in the zombie trilogy previously. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I mean, that was a very convoluted way of saying I enjoy this one, but it's definitely not a top 10 for me. What about you? Because you're the one that you're the one that picked it. And I mean, I'm curious for you, what is kind of the one element that really makes this one of your favorite Romero films? The the evolution of it, right? Because yeah. uh, they're the evolution of zombies in that sense. Because again, we've watched 28 Days Later, where at the very end, they're just starving to death, right? Mm-hmm. This doesn't seem, I mean, uh, obviously they're eating and, and stuff like that, but um, I really enjoyed the, the aspect of zombies getting smarter um, and being able to hone in on certain human elements that I think if, if again, carried from this thought can make zombies that much scarier. I mean, again, to point uh, to Dawn of the Dead, uh, but Zack Snyder's version, imagine at the beginning of the uh, movie where that little girl opens the door. I forget what... Um, uh, the female uh, lead's boyfriend's name was, but he says, you know, Mary or Katie or something like that. Imagine if she said something and then mm-hmm. kind of popped out. I mean, it's a different scene, but I right. I think it adds just such another element of horror that you can utilize for zombie movies. If someone's mm-hmm. turned around, you put your shoulder, you know, hand on their shoulder because you think it's Jay and then all of a sudden it's actually your zombified body and you bite me. I mean, there's just a number of things I think that they can take from that, but um, that's probably mine. Very long way of saying that. (laughs) (laughs) And is this crack your top five? No, 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 not top 10. It's top, not nowhere. It's not like in the top seven, I would say it made a case for being somewhere at nine or 10, but Mm -hmm. um, especially, I mean, over the last 10, 15 years, um, thankfully we've had, I don't want to say an overabundance, but we've definitely had a a lot of quality movie, uh, quality zombie movies. So um, those started packing it up for me at least. Yeah. And I think that's a great point that you make. It is scary. The Land of the Dead is scary in a way that none of the other ones are in the sense that they're getting smarter. And what does that mean about the future? And I think that's a great comparison to 28 Days because in 28 Days, that movie is so bleak for 99.9% of the film. And then the last five seconds of the movie, there's hope. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Jim sees the F-16 fly overhead. There still are civilizations. And then you get that quick cut of the zombie on the ground staring up at the plane and it's so weak from starvation that it can't even stand up. All it can do is grunt or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so it shows that like, hey, maybe brighter days are on the horizon. Mm -hmm. Whereas with Land of the Dead, who the hell knows? Okay, people pick things back up with Fiddler's Green. You know that you can't get rid of all the zombies because this is their new way of life. There's so many zombies. It's so infectious. People are constantly tearing themselves down that there's an opportunity for a new infection to break out. Right. And the idea that they're going to keep adapting 
and people will keep adapting. But the difference between the zombies and the humans are that humans are inherently self-destructive. Mm -hmm. So whether it's 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, the same exact thing might happen again. Mm -hmm. And it might happen multiple times within a year or a decade or things like that. So this film, I don't think it necessarily ends on a dour note like some of the other movies do, because obviously they have Dead Reckoning. They're going to head up north. That thing is basically impenetrable. They're shooting and yet, sky flowers, yeah. Right, shoot another <laughs> sky flower, shoot another missile. They've got crazy missiles and everything. But at the end of the day, it is a rather dour ending in terms of the future of humanity. Whereas this small group of survivors are like, hey, we, we saved the day. Now we're going to head up north for a new life. That's a new life for them. But what does that new life really mean? Right. And there's probably, you know, again, being my pessimistic self, they probably left like a solid like 1,500 people alive in Fiddler's Green. They just right. drove off. <laughs> well, within, I mean, and that is, again, the testament to Romero's world building in that very early on, like you said, you brought up that character that was kind of preaching in the streets saying they have to rise up against Kaufman. Mm -hmm. Who knows, in five years, he might be the new Kaufman. Right. It's kind of this never-ending cycle that is constantly being perpetuated where it's this idea that, yeah, as soon as somebody gets a taste of the good life, mm -hmm. they immediately forget where they're from and they become that which they more than likely hated mm -hmm. when they were in the uh, lower classes uh, shoes. Right. That's why Miller High Life is such a good beer. Um, but that's neither. <laughs> no, but yeah, I mean, again, I, I'm so happy that I was able to do this with you, man. And, uh, you know, for what it's worth, I think from the zombie movies that we've talked about so far, at least this is definitely one of my more favorite uh, podcasts to talk about it with you with. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a movie that on the surface, you think it's going to be a very kind of just, oh, yeah, it's another zombie movie that they use weapons now, but I think in getting to discuss it with you and I mean, your knowledge of zombie movies and your passion for them, uh, it gave us a lot to talk about and to break it down. But as always, man, I love having you on uh, Daily Horror Habits to talk about all things horror and uh, all things zombies. No, I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, keep pumping out that good quality, man. I love hearing it. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow the show on Instagram at Daily Horror Habit and on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod for episode updates. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you guys next time.